Please pray with me. Father God, we sit humbly before your word this morning. We ask for you to speak a life-giving word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the promise that I shared with the children comes from the end of Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel 39, verse 29. God says, I will not hide my face from them anymore when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. So we have here a promise that God never hides his face from us. But even as we hear that, some of us will be thinking, but what does that really mean? Since it feels like sometimes God does hide his face. Sometimes God seems invisible and unreachable. And sometimes it feels like he remains impassive while his own people suffer. And God's people do suffer. We still face all the normal suffering that comes with being human, sickness and injury and tiredness and failure and disappointment and grief and loneliness and loss. But even on top of that, we see additional suffering that comes to people all around the world because they belong to God and declare the name of Jesus. And so much of it has been in the news this week. And we know that right now in the world, Christian ministries are being expelled from India and Christians are being beheaded in Syria and the churches are hiding underground in Iraq and in China. So where is God's promise not to hide his face from them? Well, the part of scripture that makes this promise also helps us address the question in Ezekiel 39. And so that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. So if you can grab a Bible, please turn up Ezekiel chapter 39. It's on page 727 of the Church Bibles. And we're going to look at verses 21 through 29. It's up there on the screen. Ezekiel 39, 21 through 29. So this passage is in two halves. In verse 21 through 24, it's talking about judgment. And then in verse 25 through 29, it's talking about restoration. We've got the two halves of judgment and restoration. And in the first half, God is hiding his face from his people. And in the second half, he's promising not to hide his face anymore. And I want to look at each half in detail. So verse 21 begins, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed. So the voice we hear is God's own voice. It's God speaking through his prophet Ezekiel. And what God is saying sounds like one of the many promises we get in the Old Testament of his blessing coming to the nations, his light going out to the nations. So uh, it started with his words to Abraham when he said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it sounds like it's in that symphony of voices. But here in Ezekiel 39, it actually sounds a bit different. Because here, the judgment that God is talking about, that the nations are going to see, is his judgment on his own people. It's his judgment when he gave his people Israel up to be slaves in Babylon. That's what we see in verse 23. 
So I want to refresh our memories on what it was that happened during the exile of Israel to Babylon. And it goes back to when God promised Abraham that he would give his descendants a land to live in, a country of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a promise that God lived up to, a promise he fulfilled. He raised up Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and across the desert. And then he gave them Joshua to lead them into the promised land and to settle there. And that all happened hundreds and hundreds of years before Ezekiel. And the children of Abraham, the house of Israel, had lived there in that land ever since, hundreds of years. They were building up their towns and villages. They were planting crops and raising livestock. And they were fortifying and beautifying their great capital city of Jerusalem with its glittering golden temple. And some of our number are there right now this morning. But over those hundreds of years, not actually, sorry, they're, they're, in, they're in Jerusalem, they're not looking at that particular temple. <laughs> <laughs> over those hundreds of years, the house of Israel became more and more unfaithful to their God, didn't they? More and more idolatrous, and more and more comfortable with injustice. And God warned them and pleaded with them over and over, but they wouldn't listen. Until finally, God drew a line and he said, enough! And he gave his people into the hands of their enemies. So he allowed the kingdom of Babylon to rise up and conquer Israel, to kill many of them, and to capture many more to be slaves in Babylon. And one of those captured slaves was the prophet Ezekiel himself. Ezekiel was one of those who was exiled into Babylon with the others, and he never returned. His entire book was written in Babylon. I want to try and imagine what that was like. So imagine that another country did that to America. Let's say that it was Brazil. Imagine that the Brazilian army attacked this country and conquered it and carried all of us off to Brazil to be slaves while our homes and our gardens and our farms and our parks and our great public buildings disintegrated and became a wasteland. Can we even imagine the scale of that disaster, the depth of that suffering? It's beyond our worst nightmares. But that's exactly what happened to the house of Israel. And it's exactly what happened to Ezekiel himself. So Ezekiel was a prophet to the house of Israel during the exile. And you remember that the job of a prophet isn't primarily about predicting the future. It's mostly about explaining the present. So prophets give us the proper interpretation of what's happening to us now. They tell us God's perspective on it, what God's doing here, why he's doing it, and what he wants us to learn. So here in Ezekiel 39, we get God's perspective on the exile, what God was doing and why he did it. Why God allowed such a terrible thing to happen. And here's what God says about it, starting in verse 23. The house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and I hid my face from them. 
So what we see here is that the exile wasn't an accident. And it wasn't something that God merely allowed. No, here God takes full responsibility for what happened. For this disaster beyond imagining. He says, they dealt with me and I dealt with them. I hid my face. I gave them over. And God says that this serious, severe punishment wasn't an angry overreaction, but that he dealt with his people according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. That's a hard word. So we know that God is kind and patient and merciful, but sin is very serious. And he won't shy away from dealing with it as it deserves. So as we look around, much of the evil in the world appears to go unanswered. But it won't go unanswered forever. If God will deal this severely with his own children, with the people of his own family, then will he not deal just as firmly and severely with those people who are not his children? So may we who read this history learn the fear of the Lord. And actually, Ezekiel says, that's part of the point of the whole situation. The exile was a lesson. Yes, it was an appropriate response by God to Israel's treachery, but it was also a lesson, a lesson about who God is. Verse 22 says, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. What that means is that the survivors of the exile, the people who came back to Jerusalem, would never again forget who their God is and would never again dabble in pagan idolatry. And you know what? That's true. That's right. They never did again. They never have since. The exile was an unforgettable and lasting lesson for Israel. (laughs) But it wasn't just Israel that was getting a lesson through the exile. It was a lesson to the other nations too. So look at verse 21. Ezekiel says, All the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed. And verse 23, And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. So God chose to deal with Israel's sin by using the nations, specifically Babylon, so that his people's shame would be put on public display in front of the nations, so that people who didn't know God would see his judgment in action and recognize that this was the work of the living God, a God who also had a claim on them. So look again at that first verse, verse 21. God says, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. By the grammar of this sentence, both in English and in Hebrew, that final them at the end of the sentence must refer to the nations, not to Israel. So the judgment that God's giving is upon Israel, but when the nations see it, they recognize that the living God has also laid his hand upon them. He's laid claim to them. They are answerable to him as well. In other words, the judgment of Israel would teach the nations to fear the Lord. So think about it like this. God is like a father and Israel is like his son, a young son who's living at home. And the nations are like orphan children. They have no father. And so the nations are free in one sense. They're not answerable to anyone. They can do what they like. 
They can play as many video games as they like and go to bed whenever they like and hit and fight each other as much as they like and no one challenges them. But Israel has a father. And that comes with the security of a father and the provision of a father, but also with the expectations of a father and the discipline of a father. And here in the exile, the orphan nations get to watch something they've never seen before. They get to watch a real father disciplining and punishing his son. And that's always fascinating. When you're growing up in a family and your brother or sister gets punished, that gets all your attention. You're aching to know, what did they do? What's going to happen now? What will their punishment be? And those are all questions that I get asked a lot at home. <laughs> so imagine the fascination of an orphan child who's never seen discipline happening before. The nations would be gripped. How would this father discipline his son? And behind that question is the question, what is this father like? A father who disciplines little, loves little. We all know that instinctively. Because as soon as we were old enough to push the boundaries at home with our own parents, we started pushing them. Children are constantly exploring how much they can get away with. But every test of a boundary is really a test of love, isn't it? Because the question is, do you love me enough to notice me doing this and to stop me if we've agreed that it's wrong? Are you going to stand for me to offend you in this way? Can I make you hate me? Or am I really secure in your love? Those are the questions that children's hearts are asking every time they bend the house rules. And children that grow up with clear and consistent boundaries, patiently and firmly held, grow up secure and happy that their parents love them. But they know that a father who disciplines little loves little. And of course, the other extreme is no better. A father who disciplines harshly also loves little. Punishment that is severe or abusive or destructive or demeaning only does harm. And that shows no love either. Because it doesn't correct for the child's good. It doesn't teach the way of life. It only tears down and destroys. So here, these orphan nations are watching the true father discipline his son. And they're watching with 100% of their attention to see what the father is like. And what they can clearly see is that this father is invested in his children. He loves and respects his children enough to take their rebellion seriously. And he cares enough about his relationship with them to do something about it. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to make his ways known to his children, even going as far as exiling them, which was very much a last resort. But it was a step he was willing to take when all else failed. And even that drastic step wasn't destructive. It was restorative. It would get the message through and bear a lasting fruit of change. So amazingly, through the exile of Israel, the nations got a unique window onto God's character. And they could see that Israel's God was impressive, that he was good, that he was a force to be reckoned with, but also that he was a good father, careful and skillful at discipline. And that's enough 
to make an orphan child hungry for some parenting. To have someone care enough to challenge their flaws and call out their better selves. We all pretend that we don't need that. And we resist it when it comes. But deep inside, we want it more than anything. Someone to help me change. God shows them through his people that he can do that. So the God of the exile is impressive. But the God of restoration is dazzling. We're going to look now at the second half of our Ezekiel passage, starting at verse 25. The house of Israel was sent into exile, but it was also restored. God had mercy, and the ones who survived were brought home. Verse 25 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And that word for mercy or compassion comes from the same Hebrew root as the word for womb. So it's talking about the same kind of compassion that a mother feels for the child of her own womb. She can't help caring for him and reaching to help him, even at the cost of her own life. That's the way the father feels for his children. In his fatherly discipline, he never loses his motherly compassion. I will have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Be jealous for my holy name. Those are precious words. God had staked his reputation on saving those people, on saving those stubborn, mule-like people. They were his people, and he was their God. And he almost killed them many times. He almost killed them in the desert before they even got to the promised land. But Moses reminded him, if you do that, Pharaoh is going to laugh at you. Are you going to let Pharaoh say that Yahweh's arm is too short to save? And it's the same thing here. If the house of Israel dies in exile, then God's rescue mission is a dismal failure. And the nations will say, his arm is too short to save. So God had staked his holy name on saving them. And by George, he was going to do it. I will be jealous for my holy name. So today, if you are hanging on to the name of Jesus, then you are going to be saved. However frail and feeble you feel, you can bet your life you're going to be saved. Because God will do it, not for your sake, but for the sake of the name of Jesus. He has staked the name of Jesus on saving you. And he's going to make sure it happens. Verse 26. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. So here God doesn't promise that he will forget their sin. He promises they will forget it. See that? They will forget he says in other places in the Old Testament that he forgets it too. He says that he hides our sin behind his back and he drives it away as far as the east is from the west. But here the promise is that they will forget. And that speaks of perfect healing. The healing is so complete that they don't even remember their shame and treachery. They don't have to live under the shadow of it day after day. They can forget about it because not because it's no big deal, it is a big deal, but because it's forgiven. It's paid for. And when something's really forgiven, none of the shame of it remains. God promises in verse 27 that he will vindicate his holiness in the sight of many nations. 
So they watched his discipline of his own son. And if his discipline was impressive, then his restoration is dazzling. The nations have never seen life after death, prosperity after failure. And if the glory of God is on display when he punishes sin, how much more is it on display when he saves sinners? God says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So they knew it in the first half, in verse 22, when they fell under discipline. And they know it here in the second half, in verse 28, when they experience mercy. And then their new life in God is sealed, in verse 29, by the giving of God's Holy Spirit. And here's our promise. And I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And that part of Ezekiel's prophecy has a date. It's got a date on the calendar. It's next Sunday, Pentecost. <laughs> Pentecost AD 33 was the date that Ezekiel 39 verse 29 was fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on the house of Israel. And Pentecost came after all the shame and treachery of Israel that led to the exile in the first place had been fully paid for. It was paid for by Jesus on the cross. So when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, we notice that it was itself a kind of exile because Jesus was punished for sin outside the city. He was punished by foreigners and many nations watched the judgment of God fall on his own son. And then the resurrection of Jesus was a kind of restoration because it was life after death. God was jealous for his holy name and he reached out and vindicated his holiness in the sight of many nations. And then after that comes the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise that God will not hide his face from his people anymore. So that's the message of Ezekiel 39 and it gives us some important perspective on the heart of God. But it's not immediately obvious from this how we should make sense of the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. And for that I want to close by looking very briefly at the New Testament. First Peter chapter 4 that we heard earlier. So uh, flip forward in your Bibles to page 1016. This will be very brief, I promise. First uh, Peter chapter 4. So in chapter 4, Peter addresses our exact question. What are we to make? of Christian suffering. Because he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And in Peter's context, the trial he's talking about was the persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. They were being driven out of their towns in a kind of exile. They were having their property confiscated and they were even being physically harmed. So a lot of the same things that are happening to Christians around the world today. And Peter's prophetic interpretation of the situation is in verse 17. He says this, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's an amazing sentence, isn't it? And it's a bit of a strange idea because we're used to judgment being taken care of at the cross of Jesus which it was. But in light of what we've studied in Ezekiel, we can say right away that in the exile, judgment did indeed begin at the household of God. And it began there as a witness to the nations. And then also on the cross, 
judgment began at the household of God. In the very household of heaven, it began with Jesus himself, the divine son. And his judgment was also in the sight of many nations. And now Peter is saying that this same pattern was repeated in the early church, that judgment begins at the household of God. So I think we can say this, that the suffering of Christians around the world for their faith is both unlike and unlike the exile. It's like it because it is suffering caused by the nations, the people outside of God's fold, by people outside the family of God, and it's also done in the sight of those nations. And I think we can also say it's, it happens for the sake of those nations, that as they witness it, they see God's character. It's put on display before their eyes. But it's also unlike the exile because it's not a punishment for sin. God never hides his face from people who have his spirit. And through it all, they never lose the gift of his Holy Spirit. So when Christians suffer for their faith, it has some parallels with the suffering of the exile, but it's really much more like the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Because it happens according to God's will, as 1 Peter 4.19, and not according to uncleanness and transgressions, as Ezekiel said in 39.24. But it happens as part of God's plan that all nations should see the truth and repent. Now, I don't know how much comfort that gives you as you think about the world and about your own lives. Maybe it's not much, or maybe it's a lot. But Peter encourages us in verse 13 to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And that, I think, does give Christian suffering a purpose and a pattern and a hope. Now, before I sit down, I want to bring all this together with two practical applications. And the first is that we remember our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for their faith, that we remember them and pray for them. This is one of the easiest countries in the world to live as a Christian, but we mustn't allow ourselves to forget that there are so many places where it's so much harder. We make space in our service every week to pray for the church around the world. But if you're hungry for more of that and for more time to do that and for people to pray with, then we also have a prayer meeting on Saturday mornings specifically for the persecuted church. They share news from around the world and they pray. It starts at 9 o'clock here on Saturdays. And the other application is for all of us as we live together in community. And this is something I, that was coming up as I was reading these passages. Um, the bottom line is don't keep your suffering a secret. As I studied these scriptures this week, one thing that kept jumping out to me is that suffering does its best and most precious work in public, which is a strange thing. In Ezekiel 39, the exile did its best work by showing the nations the judgment of God and by teaching them the fear of the Lord. And in 1 Peter 4, the early church was encouraged to rejoice insofar as they shared Christ's sufferings. And that was going to happen best if they talked about them and, and suffered together as a community. Now, our approach to suffering tends to be the opposite. We tend to try to hide it from each other, to bury it. We want to put a brave face on and show other people that we're okay. I think we've come to believe that God's work in our lives can only be displayed in the victories, in the good things, in the parts we're grateful for that make us happy. So we wait 
to share our stories of rescue and restoration until they've happened. We wait to share our stories of healing until we're better. And until then, we pretend that there isn't much of a problem. And so when it comes to suffering, it's almost like we have a policy of don't ask, don't tell. But I don't think that's good. I don't think it's good for our faith or our witness or our community. Because if Israel could teach the nations about the character of God by the exile, then doesn't our pain and suffering and the way that we handle it also teach people about our God? So I challenge us to change that don't ask, don't tell policy into an ask and tell policy. Ask your brothers and sisters how they're really doing and tell each other the real deal. Because our struggles and sufferings aren't shameful things. They're not things we need to hide or be ashamed of or quickly try to patch with a band-aid. They're part of the work that God is doing in and through us. Something to be shared and talked about and walked through together. So ask and tell. And then say to each other, God is not hiding his face from you. He sees you. He hears your every prayer. He catches your every tear. And he has not fallen off his throne. He can and will restore you and raise you up. Because after death comes resurrection. And after resurrection, glory. Amen. Amen.